Welcome to episode 44 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. And happy Friday to everyone except for American Airlines, who stranded me overnight in Dallas, Texas with no notice and didn't seem to care much about it at all. Thanks, guys. I've done a lot of traveling over the last few days. I've been to Miami. I've been to beautiful southern Utah to see the city. And tonight, I am flying to England to see the Jaguars play in London against the Bills. And I'm very excited about that one. In fact, I'm taking my dad, who has never been to an NFL game before. In fact, who has never watched an NFL game before. I shall report back on this podcast, what he thinks. So I'm just going to jump right into this episode because I have to head out to the airport. My guest today is Steve Inskeep, the host of Morning Edition and Up First on NPR, and the author of an excellent new book on Abraham Lincoln called Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. The book is out now. Steve Inskeep, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Honored to be here. Thank you. Well, I love the book. And Thank you. And as a result, I want to start with a provocation of sorts, which I suspect <laughs> will double as a form of the question, why did you write this book? And that provocation okay. is this. I suggest that the thrust of your book, Differ We Must is at this moment in time in our current culture here in the United States and elsewhere fairly radical. That thrust being that even in the worst of political or moral circumstances, to seek out people who disagree with you and to be willing to debate them and engage them on their own terms is good, actually. Of the 16 stories you tell in the book, you write early on, quote, they show that Lincoln learned, adapted, and sought advantage by interacting with people who disagreed with him. Now, each of the stories you tell makes the case in one way or another for open debate, and you're explicit about this. The title of the book, as you know, comes from a letter that Lincoln wrote to a man who owned slaves. And he wasn't doing anything to get rid of those slaves, even though in the abstract he said he opposed slavery. And Lincoln signs off on that letter with your friend forever. Mm -hmm. Now, in our present era, in my experience, an enormous number of people do not want to talk to or tolerate or platform or ultimately listen to people with differing views. And here is Abraham Lincoln who is about as close to a secular American saint as we get, describing someone who is, in my estimation, committing a terrible, terrible sin, the greatest sin in American history, without question, slavery, mm -hmm. as his friend. Now, do you consider this book 
in that current context to be a radical call for a return to small L liberalism? Or is, um, am I, as one of those small L liberals, reading into it what I want to see? <laughs> I appreciate the question and the provocation. I would agree with a lot of what you what you said. I think that there are a lot of people today who are frustrated with the idea of talking to somebody else, and they've been told, and this is what I think you're suggesting, that it's naive to do that because the other person is never going to change their mind, or that it's immoral because the other person believes in something that we think is immoral, and that there's it's beyond no point talking. It's actually bad on you. It's a, it's a, it's a stain on you if you talk with someone else. And I understand a lot of those frustrations. It actually is really hard to change somebody's mind, as I bet you know just as well as, as, as I do, particularly in this polarized climate, but really anytime. I mean, if, you, if you go to a Thanksgiving gathering, say, or uh, some holiday gathering, and you're with your relatives and they disagree with you politically, it's not very likely you're going to change their mind during dinner. If politics come up at all, it's probably going to be horrible. But I, I realized in studying Lincoln that he was doing something deeper. His impulse is not, can we all get along? Can we all unite? I mean, it's, it's nothing exactly like that. He's trying to empathize and understand the other person. Where do they come from? And then he's trying to think about what is that person's interest or self-interest in this situation? And then he's trying to figure out what can I do with that? Even though we differ, is there something we can work on together? Even if we can't work together, is there some knowledge or advantage I can gain from talking with you that could be good for my cause or, or good for the country? In the example of Joshua Speed, his best friend of his life, who came from a slaveholding family, just as you said, he kept speed close in spite of their difference on slavery. And when civil war came, when Lincoln was president, he got value out of that and the country got value out of that. Joshua Speed was in Kentucky, which was a pivotal state and a slave state, a state where slavery was legal, but it stayed just barely loyal to the Union, and Joshua Speed was instrumental in working for that. He took Lincoln's side and the Union's side, not the pro-slavery side in the end. Related question. If Lincoln could do this in these terrible circumstances, it seems to me that aren't many circumstances in which it isn't beneficial, especially now, where we're not, thank goodness, in the midst of a civil war, and we're not suffering through a great hypocrisy that undermines the Declaration of Independence, and we're not looking out upon a country in which millions of people are enslaved. Can you think of a circumstance in which you just shouldn't talk to someone? I, we see this all the time in our politics. Oh, I want to talk to him. He's a Nazi. Well, actually, is is that a good idea? I mean, should we talk to people who are Nazis and try and change their view? There, I mean, there, 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 there's a problem there, isn't there? Because as long as we're a free country and a democracy, that guy that we think is a Nazi still has a vote. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean we have to agree with him or support him or endorse him or or anything else, but you've got to reckon with him somehow. And with some people, of course, you can't, there's nothing you can do. You could talk to them or not. There's not nothing you're, you're going to be able to accomplish there. And in my book, some of Lincoln's interactions ultimately fail. They go, they go nowhere. I mean, that's fine. But you do need to assemble a majority, don't you, for something constructive. If we're going to stay a democracy, 
really large groups of people have to come together in coalition um, for whatever is a better cause. And I, I mean, I agree with your your characterization as well. People are very upset, and I think rightly so, by everything that's going on in the country and how divided we seem. But it's hard to see really a civil war coming because what would it really be about? And it's not that we don't have huge disagreements. No. I mean, life or death matters for many people. I mean, we have disagreements over over uh, uh, abortion. Just to give one example that that comes to mind, we have a million disagreements about how to run the country, the economy, and everything else. But a lot of our uh, disagreements are about taste and style and culture, and 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 in some cases, it's the different ways that we characterize the same thing. It's hard to imagine really a civil war in that circumstance, although I guess it's possible to imagine other kinds of self-destruction. And one way to get things working better, I think, is to reckon with the other person. And that's just different than giving in to the other person, agreeing with the other person. But you may learn something from the other person, even if you just learn how obstinate they are. You gain, you, you gain information. I mean, I'll even say one one other thing sure. uh, about this, Mr. Cook. I'm, I'm thinking about military leaders. I mean, their job is to kill the other side. Their job is to literally kill the other side. And if it's not war right now, they're supposed to be ready to kill the other guys. They constantly want to talk to other armies. Generals in the United States military are continuously looking for ways to have rich contacts with the generals and other officers of other armies. And I guess some of that is just, you know, you'd think of it as spying or whatever, or it's imperial influence over other armies. But they even want, they want to be talking to Iranian military people, Chinese military people, Russian military people, whenever they can. And that is because they realize that there is something valuable in the exchange that can be good for their country, even if it might also be good for the other country. I mean, there's a, there's a military officer years ago who drew a distinction for me. And I don't know that every expert in English would agree with this distinction, but it's a difference between sympathy and empathy. He was talking about, I believe, Iraqis on, on, the, on the opposite side of the United States in, in the war in Iraq. And he said, I don't want to sympathize with the enemy, meaning I don't want to support their cause or think they have in any way a just cause, but I do want to empathize with the enemy. And what he meant there was, I want to understand how they're thinking, because that is really, really valuable for me. That's a practical benefit you're describing as well as a moral benefit. You seem yeah. to value practical politics in a way many don't. And you use the word. Early in the book, you say, look, we hold Lincoln up on a pedestal, and we should, and we use words such as statesman to describe him. But politician will suffice. And in, yeah. I think, the first or second chapter, you have Lincoln saying that, He's willing to stand with whomever's right at any given point, that he was, quote, ready to fuse with anyone who would unite with him to oppose the slave power. You wrote a piece in The Atlantic recently in which you note that Lincoln and Frederick Douglass were, quote, called upon to practice the art of democracy, an art that is lately out of fashion, and yeah. that's in our interest to reclaim. What would reclaiming that look like? Because that's a little bit different than debating people or listening to people or talking to people. Democracy involves power, it involves majorities, it involves making decisions. What would reclaiming the art of democracy look like? 
Oh, well, you, you just touched on an important thing there, is understanding what democracy is. It's building a majority. And building a majority in a big, diverse country with, with millions of people and many, many, many points of view is going to involve uniting in some limited or less limited way with people who are not on the same page as you. And I think an early step in understanding that is just to recognize that it's okay that we're actually not supposed to be united. We're not supposed to be all on the same page. What would the point of that be? That would be a totalitarian society if we all agreed on everything. If we truly (laughs) united on everything or even on most things, what would that even look like? It would not be good. What would be the point of having so many human beings? We'd all be redundant. But you can get in there and, and, and have the argument and just understand a somewhat more limited and much more achievable and valuable goal, that the point isn't for everyone to change their mind to agree with me. And the point isn't even for everybody to agree. But the point is, can we get a majority of us to agree on some basic things, like the fact that we have a republic with a separation of powers and there's some limitations to that? Just accept that my side is not going to win all the time and that it's not evil that my side loses sometimes. Embrace the idea that democracy is never over, that I might lose the argument this year, but I might win the argument next year or next decade. And that's really frustrating. I mean, people's lives go on. I mean, people's lives end in those times, but the argument goes on. I feel that what I'm telling you is stuff that you already know and that you clearly deeply understand and that a lot of people do understand, but I'm not sure that that everybody necessarily thinks that way, and we're not encouraged to think that way. I mean, talk radio is screaming at us that we need to be angry right now, that we didn't get everything right now. And if we're not listening to talk radio, we're watching social media, which is screaming at us that everything is terrible and everybody's... And, and you need to take a longer perspective, I would suggest. Let's talk about Lincoln as a man and as a leader. What does this habit of his tell us about him as a person. I suspect, and this came through over and over, at least to me in the book, that one has to have a remarkable patience to behave as you describe. Yeah. He debated people he thought were wrong, and not wrong on taxes or the scope of concealed carry or zoning regulations, but the bondage of human beings. He allowed William Seward to rip apart his first inaugural without taking obvious or public offense. He had a cabinet of rivals. He had generals who hated him and who disrespected him often. Mm -hmm. Was he an exceptional person or was he someone who rose to the occasion in the way a lot of other people did? I'm fascinated by this question. Charles Krauthammer, although he wasn't religious, used to say, that the closest he got to believing in providence was to look at the inflection points in American history and observe that when they came, we got Washington and Lincoln and Roosevelt and Reagan. What would have happened if Lincoln had never been born? Would we have got through it in the same way? Oh, uh, not the same way. We might have gotten through it. I mean, Lincoln might have given a very humble answer to that and said that I just responded to circumstances circumstances had brought the country into existence in a certain way and circumstances at some point dictated that slavery was going to have to end and it seemed that circumstances or god he did speak about god although he never was a member of a church and his actual faith is a matter of debate 
the environment somehow had brought people together in a, in a certain way. He was a very patient man. He kept his eye on the long game. He was humble in a way that I think reflected confidence rather than a lack of confidence, meaning that he didn't need to brag or necessarily uphold his own prickly sense of honor because he knew that it didn't matter and he knew who he was on some level. You talked about generals that insult him. There's a famous case in which Lincoln wanted to see his most frustrating general, probably General George McClellan, and McClellan had a house near the White House in Washington, and Lincoln went over to see him in the evening, and the housekeeper or whoever said, the general is out, and Lincoln said, I'll wait. I believe William Seward, his secretary of state, may have been with him at the time, if I'm not misremembering. And they sat in the parlor for quite a while, and finally McClellan walked in the door, walked past the parlor, went upstairs, and went to bed without even saying hello, which Seward considered a fantastic insult, and Lincoln said, let it go, because it didn't matter. It didn't matter to anybody but him. And even though that was his most frustrating general, he ultimately got some value out of that relationship at the very, very end before McClellan was fired for the final time. He got a victory out of McClellan, which was an important one. And of course, then he beats him in the election, which is a... Yes, exactly. McClellan became his political opponent in 1864 and, 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 and Lincoln crushed him. Which is great revenge for rudeness. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about the role of the truth in important politics. I'll explain what I mean by that. Please. Should we be content sometimes with our politicians lying if they're advancing a greater cause? If you asked me that in a vacuum, I would say, no, that's horrendous. And I would balk at the term greater cause. But throughout the book, Lincoln, he withholds views that he actually has. He is very aware of the limits of public opinion. He subordinates temporary political imperatives to practical concerns. At one point, you note that because he wouldn't embrace nativist ideas, that's one part of his life where the parties around him mm -hmm. are becoming increasingly anti-immigrant, Lincoln had upheld his moral sense at the cost of another blow to his ambitions. Then there's what Lincoln says at various points about the ideal role of African Americans in society, which many people point to now and say, well, he wasn't a hero. Look at what he said. Well, yes and no. He was aware of who he was talking to and the coalitions. It's hard to... Judge him ill for that, given that his ultimate aim was union and then abolition, but he did at various points skirt the truth. Yeah, without a doubt. I, I don't think that he lied necessarily all that much, but he certainly would withhold inconvenient facts. And on, on an issue that you raise, it's hard to accept the idea that he was always being fully truthful. The question of the role of black people in society. What role should free black people play in this overwhelmingly white society? His statements are all over the map, and most of them don't stand up today, which is why he certainly can be, can be criticized. And they contradicted with each other. Even though he denied this, 
When you read his speeches, the logic of right. his speeches always leads toward racial equality. He even has a speech in 1854 where he says, it is a total destruction of the idea of self-government if a black man cannot govern himself. He is effectively saying, if there's a black man here, he deserves the right to vote. And yet in other speeches, not too many years distant in the same decade, he's saying, I've never advocated for the right to vote for black people. I've never advocated for social or political equality, which is something that he needed to say in front of that particular racist crowd. So which of those things did he believe? And I'm not sure that he was laying all his cards on the table all the time. I think you're right about that. At the same time, he had this notion of equality as a work in progress. He had a speech, in, in one, actually in one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858, he makes this statement about the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson's line that all men are created equal, which the Founding Fathers obviously had not achieved at the time, no. and Lincoln was aware of that. And he said, this is never perfectly attained, but can be constantly approximated in ways that add to the happiness and well-being of people of all colors everywhere. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but that's pretty close. And he is saying there, this is a work in progress. We're always working on it. We're trying to get a little better. We're trying to get a little better. And that is exactly the course that you end up seeing him follow in the Civil War. Now, your first question was, is it okay to be deceptive in that way? I want to employ a little cognitive dissonance, if you will, and say that it is not okay, even though it was necessary or it may have been necessary. I think about his relationship with Frederick Douglass, who repeatedly called Lincoln out for his shortcomings on slavery, for his slowness in issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, for his advocacy from time to time of colonization, of sending black people somewhere else, any number of other, other statements. Douglass called him out again and again and again. And when I read various figures from the 19th century, there's really quite few of them whose statements nearly all stand up to scrutiny today by our standards. Douglas is one of the few whose statements nearly always do. Douglas was right. Lincoln was wrong. There is something that is fitting and appropriate for Douglas going on the record and saying what was wrong about that, even though there was also something necessary about Lincoln taking the careful course that he took. And I think the people who understood that included Frederick Douglass, the very man who called him out, who met with Lincoln in August of 1863 and came away finding his political course, quote, reasonable. And this brings us to another theme of the book, which is that Lincoln wanted at every point to work through the system. Yes. You write, Lincoln didn't advocate following a higher law. He didn't want to be John Brown. That's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting both because it provides a contrast with Frederick Douglass, who was right, but also wasn't president and yeah. commander-in-chief. Wouldn't have been allowed to be president, of course. Well, of but course go on. not. Yes, you're exactly right. No, yeah, but, yeah. but if, if Abraham Lincoln had followed the course provided by Frederick Douglass, he would have been morally correct, but perhaps he would have lost the war and we wouldn't have I had think you're right. the Emancipation Proclamation. So that's one tension. But the other tension is that the United States is founded on a revolution. It's founded on a document that explicitly says that if the government is tyrannical, it is legitimate for people to operate outside of it, to abolish it even. 
I can't think of a much greater tyranny than slavery compared to George III. Slavery was more like the tyrannies of the 20th century than anything else. And I often point this out, that George III was a tyrant in the narrow conception of good government that the founders had, and I'm glad that they had it, but slavery was was an awful lot worse. But Lincoln at no point says, despite his reverence for the Declaration of Independence and often for Thomas Jefferson's writing, he at no point says, yes, we will go outside of the system. Why is that? Well, I can I can give an answer to that. I want to note that I think you're exactly you're exactly correct about that. This is one of the reasons that Lincoln was described even in his time by abolitionists as backward or a laggard because one of his essential points about slavery before the war and even in the early parts of the war was the Constitution, as currently interpreted, allows the states that practice slavery to go on doing it. There's nothing I can do about that, and at this time, I'm not going to try. There's nothing practical that I can do within the system. What I can do within the system is contain slavery, is limit slavery on federal land in the West that's about to become new states and, and so forth. Um, Lincoln's own explanation for why he was in favor of, I guess, what we'd call the rules-based order, perhaps, um, in favor of law and order, was that he believed that was the only protection for freedom. He gave an often quoted speech as a relatively young man in 1838, so he's around 29, uh, in Springfield, Illinois, and the theme of the speech is the vital importance of the rule of law, that that is the only thing that restrains some demagogue from seizing power in some way. His greatest concern in this speech was lawless violence. It was a period of tremendous uh, violence on the streets, often I guess what we would characterize as political violence in the United States. Many of the incidents had to do with slavery, paranoia about slave uprisings in the South, and and suddenly uh, dozens of people would be hanged in Mississippi, or an incident on the streets of St. Louis and suddenly a black man would be uh, burned alive. There were also riots over other topics. There was a lot of, of lawlessness. And the theme of Lincoln's speech is essentially that the only way we hold each other in check, the only way we therefore preserve our freedom, is through the law. He was not going to say, I'm right and uh, I alone can fix it. Should I have said that? I guess I did say that. (laughs) He wasn't going to take that kind of theme. You know, he just wasn't because he did not believe that one person was going to be able to fix it all. That wasn't how life worked or humanity worked. Did he have a sense of destiny? I did a podcast recently with Andrew Roberts, whose book on Churchill is called Walking with Destiny. And I asked him, well, why, why is it called that? And he said, well, because Churchill really believed that he was put on earth for a great purpose. He believed it since he was a child. And at every point, he looked at those who were in power and he said, I can do this better. Is that true of Lincoln huh. too, or was it accidental? I think he had a lot of confidence in his own leadership. I will quote the review of my mother here. Um, my mom read the, a galley of this book. When you, know, when you write a book, as, you, know, you can send it to your mom. And she said, I had always thought that Lincoln became president purely by chance. And I realized that, in fact, he was uh, much shrewder than that and more calculating than that. Lincoln was an ambitious guy that believed he could do it. 
And that confidence is remarkable given his lack of formal education and everything else. But did he have an idea of destiny, personal destiny? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, he sometimes toyed with ideas that we might call predestination. There's a letter in the 1840s where he admits to having argued once upon a time in favor of something called the doctrine of necessity, which I can't claim to fully understand, but essentially it's the idea that that it, we, we are all being moved by some force that is outside our own minds and that all of our actions are predetermined. And it's, it's fascinating to think about. I, I wonder sometimes if he believed that it was like kind of a Newton's law kind of thing. Like if you start a rock rolling down a hill and certain objects are in the way, certain things are inevitably going to happen because of gravity. Um, and maybe that's what he meant by everything having been destined. All the objects of the universe have been set in motion, and it's inevitable that things will therefore happen as a result if we were only smart enough to figure out what they were. In this letter in the 1840s, he said, I have given up arguing for this. But it's a very clever lawyerly letter because he doesn't say he gave up believing this. And there are other statements later in his life where he seems to speak the same way and sometimes attribute it to God. Maybe it's God that wills that this war goes on for God's own purpose, which is different from the North's purpose or the South's purpose, either either one. So he had this grand sense of events. I mean, that's, I think sort, of, he also, that's sort of astonishing on. line, too. I highlighted that in my copy of the book. Because he is, at the point at which he's writing that, the head of the army that is fighting an existential war, not only against the Confederacy, but in favor of what we now consider, and I think he considered, to be the most just cause in all of American history. And he's sitting there meditating on the possibility that the South's cause and the North's cause might not be the only two in the game. I just think yes. that shows an unbelievable open mind. Yes, it is It is incredible. And so he had a sense of destiny in that events may be moving in some way that were beyond his or any individual's control. And he didn't exactly know what that force was, but but yeah, he thought about it. In fact, I, the more I think about it, the more I realize there's a kind of earthly way to describe all this, which is that we are all shaped by our environment, or as he put it, our circumstances. And we're influenced by the position that we're in to take the actions that we do. And that is an overpowering force. And it means that change in human affairs is incredibly slow you may not really be able ever to escape your circumstances. Maybe the most that you can do is change the circumstances themselves a little bit so that a future generation can change something. And there was a great change in Lincoln's time, of course, the end of slavery. But as we know very well, that was even that tremendous step was only one step toward a more just society. What do you think the most, or I should say the least understood thing about Abraham Lincoln is. Some of the stories in the book are well-known already, but some of them aren't. Some of them are more obscure. They must have taken a great deal of research. If you... Or chance, yeah. Or chance. Yeah, just run across uh, references to people. His interaction with a woman who said she was a soldier 
was something that was entirely new to me. Mary Ellen Wise was, was her name, and she appeared in the White House in 1864 and said, I dressed up as a man, cut off my hair, enlisted in the Army, fought for a couple of years, and now I'm owed some back pay. I'm having trouble collecting my back pay. Can you help? Now, her story is, is really doubtful. There are a lot of details that don't make any sense. But as a matter of practical fact, she was discovered in uniform in the South in war zones. And also, as a matter of fact, there were hundreds of women who appeared to have done this. There were hundreds who were caught. And there's no way actually to tell how many there actually were because they were assuming aliases and doing this in disguise. It's kind of astonishing that a woman could disguise her identity while surrounded by thousands of men. And if they're bathing at all, they're bathing in streams. There's no privacy. They're living in tents or sleeping on the ground. But some women managed to, to do this. And I guess one of the fascinating things about this incident is that Lincoln allowed it to be publicized and had a particular political use to make of it. But another one was that he seemed to be perfectly open to the idea of women as soldiers. He wasn't so hung up on maleness that he found this to be an absurd notion. His deal was he needed as many people as possible to sign up for the Union cause so they would outnumber the Confederacy. And here was somebody who at least claimed to have done her part. And he signed a note to take over to the federal paymasters to say, pay this person. And if there turns out to be a problem with it, I'll cover it. What were his biggest flaws? We lionized the man. He is yeah. on the money. He <clears throat> is a hero. But he was a man. Yeah, and he covered them up to some extent. I mean, is it a flaw to, to suffer from melancholy and depression? I mean, if it is, he absolutely did and struggled with that. That may have added to his patience. He may have made some use of that. He was a little deceptive, as we have already discussed. He had a close friend who has, there's, there's a great quote about Lincoln and his style of operation, that he could be perfectly talkative and friendly and candid in conversation and let his guest go away, believing that Lincoln had disclosed everything, when in point of fact he had withheld so much so as to have disclosed nothing. Now, we've talked about this as a political advantage, and I think it generally was, but it also makes him, a, I don't want to use the word shifty, but it makes him a little little hard to find, a little hard to read, a little hard to connect with. He was a very remote person. It is strange. David Herbert Donald, who is one of the great Lincoln scholars and biographers, or, or who was, has a book about Lincoln and his friends and writes, I believe in that book, that Lincoln had many people who believed they were friends of Lincoln, but it wasn't clear that Lincoln was really that much friends of theirs. <laughs> he held himself remote from from other people, even people who who loved him. And it's hard to peer into the privacy of his marriage, even a marriage that's so famous as his, his very bad marriage. But I don't think it's really unreasonable to speculate that part of the problem in that marriage was 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 on him. Part of it was Mary Todd was the kind of person that she was, and she probably today would be diagnosed with one kind of mental illness or another, and she was very self-centered and, 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 and everything else. But part of that problem, too, may have been that Lincoln was someone who would withdraw into himself, who could share so many words and laughs and insights, but wouldn't really share himself 
with other people, and I think often was probably emotionally unavailable to 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 anybody around him. David Donald, again to quote him again, describes him as a rather inattentive father, which is a completely different idea than the popular idea of Lincoln. It's this man who was touched by children and who loved children, and I don't doubt that he loved children, but he maybe wasn't always available for his his kids. I would put them down as personal failings more than political failings. And I would also admit that his views on racial equality, they were mixed up. They were not advanced, even though, as I said, he would make contradictory statements. He would say what we understand is the right thing, and then in the same speech or another speech, say what we understand is the wrong one. Yeah. Where do you come down on that? Clearly, as you point out, his logic led to equality. But one can believe in legal or formal equality without actually liking people who are different than yeah. you. Yeah. I, I'm trying to see how I can most properly express this. I don't truly know what is in his soul. Richard Hofstetter, a, a famous historian, has a line about uh, looking at some of Lincoln's contradictory statements and saying it's hard to say which is the principled man and which is the professional politician. It's hard to see his soul, but I'm tempted a little bit to set that aside and look at the effects of his words. And I guess that is because of an opinion I have about the present day. When many people today talk about race they focus inwardly. You know, are they pure? Are their ideas entirely right? And that is even the way that a lot of people, a lot of us have been trained to think about ourselves. Are we being morally right on this? Are we absolutely correct? And if we're not correct on a matter like race, it's just utterly horrifying. And so we need to deny any wrongness and we need to smack down anybody who says anything that's slightly wrong and we need to use the proper words and everything else. But I want to look in the other direction on an issue like that. My starting point is that human beings are all flawed. You know, we're all cracked in some way. Or even if we're doing our very best, we maybe don't know what the right is. And whatever is definitely right on race or any other topic may not be the same thing that everybody believes 10 years from now. And so the question is less about what is inside someone's soul and more about what use they are making of themselves in the world. And that makes me worry less about whether Lincoln was exactly pure in all matters on race and worry more about what practical difference he made. Right. Uh, so you see him in that regard as the opposite of, say, Alexander Stevens, who used his time on this planet to make things worse. Yeah. For yeah. the country and for. Yeah. For although, race. let's note, Lincoln made a friend of Stevens. They were friends. Uh, they served in Congress together, and he tried to get value out of Stevens, even though not so successfully. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the concept of equality as it relates to class in this period. This jumped out at me in the book, partly because in the modern era, we treat presidents like popes. And although we tell people anyone can be president, except me as an immigrant, but <laughs> I don't want to be, don't worry. Secretary of State someday. There we, we get go. around to There it. we go. Yeah. Uh, but we tell people anyone can be president. But when we say that, we almost mean anyone can be taken from their normal middle class life and become this person who 
operates almost as a celebrity within our culture. We we like as a culture, I'm not including myself in this, I'm a big critic of this, but we do like as a culture the pomp and circumstance around the presidency. But from his earliest days as a politician, you keep pointing out that Lincoln is consciously lowering himself in yeah. the way that he talks about himself, the way he dresses, the extent to which he's willing to say who he's working for and how much money he has and where he lives and so on, in a way that probably doesn't quite resonate today. I wonder if you could explain that 1840s, 50s culture. Yeah, um, I thought of it as a culture of equality. And it's not dealing with all members of society and not perfect all the time, but there was a sense that people believed they were equal in the United States, or at least white people believed this, and they did not want somebody to be acting as their better, to be putting on airs, to use an older sort of phrase. And if somebody got above himself, which is another phrase that suggests this, they might reach up and drag him back down. And it seems clear to me that Lincoln was constantly conscious of this, and he would present himself very humbly, and he would emphasize his own poverty growing up. He would emphasize his own lack of education. He would sometimes even turn this into a form of sarcasm. He mocked Senator Stephen A. Douglas by saying, you know, in, in earlier days, he was not so much a greater man than all of us as he is now, which was a way of saying now he's self-inflated and above us, and so it's time for us to drag him down. Uh, he would use that as a, as a, as a spear, almost. He understood that really well, that modesty of presentation. I think that culture of equality is very human. I think in many ways it is still with us. There is a more modern work. It's fiction, but there's a lot of truth in it. Ward Just, who wrote a lot of novels about Washington and about politics, has a story about a man in, I think, an unnamed state, an anonymous state, and he's he's the mayor of a city there and massively popular and wins re-election again and again, and then he gets an idea to run for governor, and his fellow citizens of his hometown wonder why he would try to do that and leave their town. Does he think he's better than them? And his campaign gradually begins to sink and fall apart, and he loses the governorship, and he even loses the vote in his hometown. They pulled him down, helped to pull him down. And that's fiction. But when, I don't know, 20-some years ago, I was working in Newark, New Jersey. This is a thing that people said of politicians in Newark, New Jersey. If anybody got ambitions to rise above himself and run for Congress or run for governor, somebody would reach up and pull him down. Like, what do you think? You're better than us? And so this is politically true. And I think it's true in ordinary life. It's true in people's workplaces. You know, it's one of the functions of being competitive. We get upset if somebody gets ahead of us and we may, you know, reach out and, and, and trip them up. This is very human. And Lincoln recognized this and went with it to the extent that he could. I agree with you that the imperial presidency or whatever you want to call it is very much at odds with that. Celebrity culture is a strange yeah. sort of mixture of equality and not. I mean, anybody can suddenly be famous and have the glare of the spotlight on them and have every question asked about them and everybody asking what they're wearing and, and everything else. I mean, it's equalizing in that way, but it's also like radically 
unequal and offensive and sickening. And I think we kind of have all of these feelings with celebrity culture. Well, and the imperatives um, are different because if you suddenly become extremely famous, then the incentives are to point out that you flew in on a private jet and are sitting in a private box, not to pretend that yeah. you're the same as everyone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's a feature of Lincoln's presidency that I suppose has nearly gone away. I think there are modern presidents who have tried some very limited version of this. And it's the idea that Almost completely random people, extremely humble people, could come to the White House yeah. uh, or the executive mansion, as it was often called, and wait in the outer office of the president. And if they waited long enough, they might well get in there to see him and voice their complaint or whatever it was. Lincoln did this a lot to the point where his secretaries worried about him wasting all his time with all of these ordinary people. But like a private in the army would come to see him or a woman whose husband was in jail would come to see him and he would talk to these people. And that comes, I think, from a place of recognizing the equality of your fellow citizens. I'm thinking of another president I've studied a little bit, James K. Polk, who was president in the 1840s. Polk left a very detailed and in many ways sour but very interesting diary. And in his diary, he repeatedly talks about the people in his outer office who've come to see him. And he hates them. He loathes them. He's like, these are terrible people, <laughs> and they don't want anything important. They just want a job. They're coming to waste my time to demand a job. I can't stand these people, but I have to see them and be polite. And to me, that's the power of the culture, that even the president of the United States was forced to recognize that his fellow citizen was an equal to whom he had to give a hearing some random person that he'd never met, somebody he thought even was up to no good. He had to give him a hearing. And Lincoln did that. And, you know, I suppose in a country of 300 million people, it would not be smart to have a president who felt obliged to see anybody who showed up. But I find the principle kind of cool. And I almost wish that modern presidents, you know, set aside a couple hours on Saturday that whoever lined up would see him. I mean, who knows how that would work out? Well, I know presidents do end up seeing people, but but there's there's probably more that could be done. Yeah. One of the objections, of course, w that would be raised if you proposed that is security. But I think that's an odd one to yeah. suggest here, given that Lincoln was killed and yes. he sees all of these people... Uh, in the midst of a civil war in which hundreds of thousands of people have died and there's a great deal of animosity, and he keeps doing it. Did he know that he was going to die? Did he have a sense that he was going to die? He had a sense that there was nothing he could do about it. He had that broader idea of destiny that we've talked about, and he didn't really think that it was practical to do much about it. Well, during the Civil War, I forget which year, but during the 1860s, while he was president, his friend Joseph Gillespie, one of his friends, by the way, who had horrible views, but was his friend anyway and his political supporter, his friend Joseph Gillespie came to visit him in Washington and discovered him walking alone down Pennsylvania Avenue outside the White House and immediately expressed fears for his safety and his security. And Lincoln said, I'm paraphrasing here, there's no point in doing, th doing anything about it. To try to secure myself would be like putting up one fence rail when the whole fence has been knocked down all the way along. Basically saying, if they don't get me one way, they'd get me another way. If somebody wants to get me, they're going to get me. And so he went about his life and his days in Washington. He did have some security. Is that true? Uh, but is that true? Yeah. You mean was the he statement? right about that? 
I, th- I think, I mean, it's a thing I think that we all realize in our own lives, don't we? That, you know, if somebody really wants to get to us, they're just gonna. And there may not be very much that we can do about it. Now, if we are a president yeah. and it is the 21st century, thankfully, it would be very, very hard to attack uh, president of the United States. And yet, even so, we have these occasional stories of like completely inappropriate people who show up in the White House or somehow get onto the lawn or yeah. get near the president one way or another. It's really, really hard to make yourself entirely safe from destiny, if I can use that word again. It's almost impossible to think of Abraham Lincoln without his dying. Yeah. I, I don't want to sound as if I think it was foreordained or a good thing. I think neither. But it, it makes him almost Christ-like. We have the same relationship with Martin Luther King. There is a, a sacrifice with Lincoln and a remarkable lack of detritus in his later years. He, your book does not have stories of Abraham Lincoln meeting people in 1866 or 1870 or 1875. It doesn't have stories about his relationship with Reconstruction. It doesn't have stories about his feeling about this or that tariff because he was dead. He succeeded and achieved this remarkable thing. And then he was taken from us. Does that change the way you write about him when when you're researching is that yeah, just a given? I mean, there were there are some as a researcher, there are some consequences of that. One is that, of course, he had no time to write a memoir, so we don't really have his account of events except from his contemporaneous letters and speeches and statements. It makes it even harder, I think, to get inside the man's skin, to get into his soul, to figure out in certain circumstances what he was really truly thinking. He's a remarkably relatable person who is at the same time distant. And his untimely death is part of that. Another thing that this does when you're researching him is you have to take it into account when you are reading post-assassination memories of Lincoln, because he was sainted in a way by this death and this sacrifice. And it did play into the beliefs of what was at that time an overwhelmingly Christian nation where the Bible was familiar even to people who were not particularly religious, and it did step over or track over the story of Jesus Christ for many people and and filled them with reverence. Even if they'd been on the other side of the war, people realized he was a figure to be regarded with reverence for his sacrifice. And when you're a researcher, a writer, a historian, you have to realize then that a lot of the memories from after 1865 might be polished, might be edited out. The uncomfortable things are left out or not even remembered in the first place. Or the memory is not even very useful to you because it tends to be more about how I was once close to Abraham Lincoln than any particular insight about Abraham Lincoln. I mean, there's a lot of of writing about Lincoln that just doesn't give you very much. And that's that's one of the reasons. This is a really weird irony. But, it, I mean, does add to his reputation. And I wouldn't be the first person to, to note that. There is a kind of strange, I'm not saying it's good at all, so don't, no, uh, don't let anybody listening, you know. But there's a, there's a strange thing about that, that there's a cleanliness to it that makes it a story that just bang, ends. I'm thinking of a novel, Libra, by Don DeLillo, which is uh, essentially about the Kennedy assassination. 
And there's a character in it who's some kind of white nationalist or something. He's a, a terrible person, but he's a leader of this terrible group. And there is an assassination attempt. And someone fires through his window, and there's a bullet hole in the glass, but they miss. And that is the end of the assassination attempt. And DeLillo, in writing of this guy, it's kind of comical. The guy gradually begins to lose esteem and reputation because he really should be dead. But there's something wrong with the story now because he's still alive and he's supposed to be dead and sainted and a martyr to his cause, but he's still standing there. And people in his own movement tend to respect him less. Now, that's kind of bitterly satirical, but I think there's also kind of an underlying truth there. There's a convenience in narrating Lincoln about his death. And if you're writing a book about him, I think it's just something you need to be conscious of in weighing what to include and which evidence and which testimony to kind of discount by 20% or 50% or leave out altogether. Right. And you know the ending before you start. And so you can start to assume that everything that happened was in ineluctably leading up. Yeah, to, there's to, a danger uh, of that. There's a danger of that. My last question, do you like him? I often ask people who write biographies of great figures, and sometimes they say no. They say, I'm fascinated by him. I'm fascinated by the period and by what he did in it and his role. But actually, no. did you like Abraham Lincoln? Yes. I mean, I, 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 I identify with him in many ways. He spent most of his youth in my home state. He came from modest circumstances, and I was far more fortunate than, than him, but maybe more modest than some other people. He didn't have a lot of education, and he went a, a long way in the world, and that's something to aspire to, I think, and to admire. I do appreciate his interpersonal relations with other people. He certainly was distant, as we've discussed, from other people, but he was invariably courteous, invariably listened. Nearly always, not always, he could get angry, but nearly always kept his sense of humor. It's, it's hard to recapture all of his sense of humor because I don't think that most of the people who heard his jokes were clever enough to, to repeat them and write them down. <laughs> A lot of his jokes don't quite carry across the centuries, but there's enough there to just sense that this guy on some level, despite all of his troubles, enjoyed himself and enjoyed life and enjoyed other people and enjoyed the ironies of human existence and enjoyed wordplay. And all of those things are things are that, that, that make him uh, relatable and make him feel that, yeah, you would, you would like this person. Maybe you wouldn't entirely know what to make of this guy because everybody's different and he had some beliefs that may feel kind of strange to us, but he's somebody you, you would like to meet and would remember. All right. Well, the book is Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. It's out on October 3rd, which will be today by the time people listen to this. Steve Inskeep, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Mr. Cook, I've done a number of interviews already, and this is the best one yet. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Steve Inskeep, for coming on to talk about his book on Abraham Lincoln. Thank you to you for listening. No thank you to American Airlines this week. And we'll see you next time.